John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1315.PR2131, certificate number 17918. Tom Thumb. See a little guy? See a little guy who lives in your the walls of your house? No. He's not a little guy. I, in fact, I have done extensive testing, and there are no little guys living in the walls of my house. Your house is borrower-free? If you put a spool of thread down, no one takes it and makes a, a chair or a coffee table out of it? No. My old house, what we call the farm, had lots of little guys living in the walls, and uh, it was a source of constant uh, stress for me. Did you ever see them? Yes. And I was fighting them all the time. Did I they was have, yelling at them in the did night. Did they have long tails or were they little leprechauns? Some of them had long tails. Some of them had no tails. Some were leprechauns. Some were gnomes. Some were just things that go bump in the night. How do you tell the difference between a Owls. leprechaun and a gnome? Uh, well, a, no, a leprechaun will admit to being a leprechaun, but a gnome will always deny it's a gnome. Well, that's the same problem then. We're not gnomes. They'll both, they're both, they'll both say they're leprechauns, right? Oh, interesting. So how do you know? Uh, you reach huh. a door. It has two little imps in front of it. One always tells the truth. One always lies. I feel like you have to, uh, 50% of them have to be gnomes. Probably. And so. For the balance to be maintained. So if everyone tells you they're a leprechaun, you know half of them are lying. So you have to, I mean, I In don't aggregate, know. that's very helpful. It doesn't help you with the individual leprechaun. The thing is, if it sinks, it's a gnome. If it floats, it's a leprechaun. <laughs> It solves the problem either way. Um, we talk a lot about technology here, and a big and a big premise of the show, of course, is that we're going through, even though it it may not seem like it, we're going through a technological revolution. Um, it does seem like it, I think, to people that are playing Angry Birds on their phones. Oh wow, I was never able to do this. You know, I talk a lot of smack about computers. Um. You know, my contention is that in, in almost every way, the computer revolution of the last 40 years has not materially improved anyone's life or even really improved business or correspondence. I mean, being able to email is nice, but is it better? Um, in the sense that all of the constant back and forth com- communication you have, is it 
does it actually improve the experience of that communication? I was thinking about how it could make everybody do a bunch more. Everybody's work could look a bunch more polished, whether they were actually good in their field or not. But is that is that an improvement? Is that good? That's not good. It's not actually good. None of it is actually good. We we did fine before them, but more importantly, the fact that we have to struggle. I mean, there are plenty of people listening. They're like, "What are you talking about? I never would have been able to fax." My thing before. Well, every single person listening is probably has some kind of computerized device. They're listening to, to it right now, like and and this gets this gets uh, used a lot. Podcasts have they made your life better? I mean, I think this podcast has inarguably made people's lives better. Well, but, it, paid, it, it paid for your house. I mean, it made your on, life better. But. On the whole, have computers have they made our lives better? Uh, commensurate with the amount of money we spend on them, the amount of time we spend on them. I don't think there's any way you could argue yes. Even if you jump to all the processing power needed to, say, map the human genome. Right, which is interesting and cool. Well, it might also... Eventually make our lives better. Cure a bunch of diseases. I'm not saying computers won't eventually make our lives better. But but you have to... I'm just saying you have to offset that with whatever computers actually, you know, did with drones accidentally six hours ago in Yemen, you know? Exactly. Or the just the energies that they're, that they're sucking in order to accomplish these things. But also just the amount of time that you and I spend just yeah. sitting aimlessly moving stuff around on a page. I would say, on the whole, computers were good when they were on tables in a weird part of your house. Okay. But then, when you could always be in the computer, that's when, that's when people... That's when your frontal lobe started... Um, glowing this is a this is the uh, yeah this is the argument that computers were good when they helped you balance your household books well when you had to go to them when you had to visit them like a lot of things let's say you had to visit somebody invents the spinning jenny you go to a spinning mm-hmm. jenny mm-hmm. you spin something mm-hmm. some kind of maybe not i don't know what i'm talking about a mechanical loom yeah spin, spinning jenny but let's say there was just a mechanical loom in your pocket that made you always have to be looming things mm-hmm. i mean that we would all be dressed in such luxuriant fabrics no but that's the problem we'd be wearing crappy fabrics because they were made on pocket looms basically all the bad things of the industrial revolution would have happened but also none of the none of the good things right. would have happened none because, of the nice wool because we would have didn't have we had to be on our looms twenty four seven. But one of the and and this we haven't even gotten into social media and let's not. But uh, one of the premises of uh, omnibus is that in the future, looking back, there will be this very strange um, moment where it seems like time began because prior to this moment, there will only be records in the form of moldy books, uh, maybe oil paintings of a very few people. VHS tapes where the tracking doesn't work anymore. Yeah, a few like, oh, somebody used a used a sticker maker to put some labels on a filing cabinet. And then really... Minute-by-minute minute coverage uh, yeah. of everything after 2002. Over a period of just a year or two, we, will, we suddenly... The world comes into into focus, and then everybody has every minute of their lives documented from then on. Presumably, unless there's A, an apocalypse, or B, people come to their senses. It does mean that when people, I mean, it's the same as now. When people imagine the Civil War, right now they're imagining Civil War movies. 
It'll right. be just the same as then. You know, people trying to think, well, what would the 70s have been like? They're just going to look at YouTube era recreations of it. Yeah, which will, which will always be wrong. And I mean, that's that's the that's the problem. I mean, my great grandparents, my great grandparents lived long and full lives. And the only documentation is a few letters written in, in cursive hand that are in a folder in my mom's uh, house that I will keep because I'm a pack rat, but my daughter won't, yep. you know, and that's the end. They are, all they are then is a, is a notation on family search. On a, yeah. Coming from a few government documents. Whereas I will have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of recordings unless... Well, no, because, because your daughter throws them away. No, but we're encoding them on platinum discs. We're going to put them in a titanium vault in the desert somewhere. But can you think? Can you think? Some days I think I can, but then sometimes I think it's just an epiphenomenon of consciousness. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I wonder that myself. But you know, human beings. You, this is a Jeopardy uh, question for you. Um, and I don't remember how to phrase him. Do you phrase him as a question? No, you phrase the answer as a question. He's going to get there, folks. What is, uh, how long have, uh, modern humans lived on the earth? That is, you phrased it wrong. How? No, that's a question. Um, modern humans there have lived on the earth for this many millennia. There you go. Modern humans like evolved like ones that look like us? Yes, that it can think like us and... and think like us. Yeah, think like us. Mm, it's two digits. 40. 40,000 years. Yes. Is it less? I think it's more. Okay, how much more? I think it's 100,000 years. Eh, okay. Was... But let's settle on 60 just, just in case there are some... What's halfway between 40 and 100? 70. 70,000 years. The answer I made up and the answer you looked up will take the average. I'm not even sure I looked it up. I think I might just have it on the top. Uh, I might have that as one of those thumbnails. Well, it's a little blurry because we didn't evolve overnight. It's not like a monolith appeared and we touched it and then we started whacking each other with bones. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, uh, I don't know how how old are the oldest cave. Oh, no, wait. The oldest cave paintings are. How old? Nope. The oldest cave paintings are. The old cave paintings are. This old, it's 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 easy. Yeah, uh, the internet tells me sixty four thousand years. So there you go. But People, it's a Neanderthal. So like, what is it? What does a thinking person count as? That's somebody of a different species doing cave. Well, wait a minute, you're insulting me now because I have uh, uh, I have a measurable amount of Neanderthal. Is that what twenty three and me says about you? That's what a computer that sequenced our genomes concluded. See? See, didn't that make your life better knowing that you were three percent Neanderthal? No. No, I, I mean all it did was introduce me to the concept of Neanderthal pride, and now I'm on some websites I don't want to be on. But if you think about tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of years, I mean I didn't even get close to saying that six times. No, let alone ten. times. You lost interest very quickly. <laughs> um, uh, people could not travel faster than a horse. There was no method other than falling off a cliff by which they could travel faster than a galloping horse. Is that right? Can you think of an instance? Wait a minute. A person could travel faster than a horse by doing... No. Not what? By... Just say this. Just say this. this. By doing this. By doing this. Um, A person can travel faster than a horse by doing this. Do you think there were human cannonballs in... uh in 19th century circuses? Oh boy, could you have 
Could you have could you have survived you put into firing a cannon? A... No, I don't think so. Not even with some kind of mechanism whereby the you're shielded from the explosion, but it it forces some kind of no piston like thing to push you forward. I think most cannonball things at the circus are actually like a new like a steam powered. There's no actual gunpowder in there. No, there there you're right. It's yeah. just a it's a it's a. I think they're maybe they're spring loaded. Yeah, maybe. I'm not and sure. And then there, then there's a boom, and it's just a platform pushing the guy up. Yeah. But well, I mean, you, we would have been aware of species that could move faster than a horse. That's right. But you can't ride a you can't really ride a cheetah. I think that there are there are and have been for a while human beings that could sprint faster than a horse uh, over a short distance because it takes the horse a little bit to get going. But I don't think. Oh, and there have been endurance races, right? Over over a sufficiently long distance, humans are better than almost any other animal, right? Because we just keep going, whereas a horse needs to stop and eat hay, eat and, some oats, and hang out with Mickey Rooney in a barn. Yeah, that's right. So, but I think in terms of like top speed, once a horse gets going, it can outpace a human being. So you'd still be going faster on a horse. Now you might think that a sailboat. Hmm. could go faster than a horse. Can a, the fastest clipper ship go faster than a horse? No. The USS Constitution... Well, the horse will sink. The horse will sink. That's right. And we're talking about overland, but just just to feel the wind in your hair, uh, the USS Constitution could, uh, topped out at 13 knots, which is, you know, 15 miles an hour. That's not so great. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, a horse... Can like the fastest horse can go fifty five miles an hour. I mean, we're all moving through space at Sprinting. a million miles an hour, right? Um, it's a, it's a go ahead and sing a, the song. It's an eight billion way tie between all of us, <laughs> but we weren't aware of it because we didn't have computers to tell us. Uh, we were not aware of it until computers. That's right. And I guess there's there's the distance, there's the speed of the Earth around, the, the motion of the Earth, the Earth around the sun, uh, the expansion of the universe. I can't think of any way to get faster than a horse, unless it's, you're on a horse, but also you're maybe, you're poking it with a pin and it's going, whoa, <laughs> and then it speeds up past 55. Is that why 55 miles per hour was the was the EPA, the 70s era speed mm-hmm. limit? Because mm-hmm. it was like, we're just going back to horse times. That's right. Jimmy and Carter's like, the speed of a horse is the fastest that God intended us to go. <laughs> and Sammy Hagar was like, no, computers. <laughs> Once again, Carter versus Hagar, the eternal struggle. <laughs> well, it was an eternal quest, obviously, to go faster than a horse, just as it always, uh, as Farside taught us, uh, uh, man's desire to fly higher than a bird is what caused us to invent the bow and arrow because we, if we couldn't fly, then we wanted to murder birds. <laughs> we were mad at them. Yeah. So bird murder. Well, the arrow could go higher than many birds. So there's that. You could vicariously soar through the, your arrow. Wait a minute. What bird can't go higher than an arrow besides an ostrich? I'm just saying at any given time, a bird a could be lower than an arrow you would shoot. That's right. By the time you shot it, the bird would, would have a hard time outpacing your arrow getting higher right if you were if it was a low flying bird and you shot an arrow but the bird if it saw the arrow could have could presumably take evasive action it won't it won't it won't have time 
Uh, and so, jumping ahead, should I reveal this? Yes. What does your sense of narrative tell you? John, your sense of narrative reveals to you this. My sense of narrative... I'm not going to jump ahead, Ken. I'm going to stay in a... I'm going to, I'm going to do this show in a linear fashion. You know, often I will... Your shows tend to move, progress through time. I often jump around, oh, this happened in 2015. This happened in 1904. And, and I think it just makes it harder for people to understand. You're a, you're a fourth dimensional being. Yeah, that's right. You're like Billy Pilgrim. You don't you can look down on all of time as a single hypercube. Bleep, bloop, bleep, because I'm telling a story and it doesn't matter. You know, the things happen in time, but that's only part of the story. I, I like how you think the definition of telling a story is, and it can't be in order. <laughs> that one thing we know about stories, that they do not have chronology. Don't put them in order. <laughs> now, the steam engine, let's get to the steam engine. I'm okay. going to jump to the steam engine. I mean, I assumed when you said for centuries, I always assume that ends with until the Industrial Revolution. Until the indu- It all ends in the Industrial Revolution, and then there's a, there's a brief period where we're all breathing coal smoke, and then the internet happens, and then we just, there was a pandemic, and we stayed home from then on. Let me guess. The, all the coal smoke made the horses slower, and so it's, we were finally able to beat them because they were just hacking up a lung. That was the point of steam engines, was to pollute the environment so that horses we're no longer faster than humans. Just Finally. like the bow and arrow was invented to kill the birds. The eternal struggle. Horses <laughs> are my Sammy Hagar. I'm so tired of seeing them outpace me. But, you know, steam engines, of course, it's a concept like everything long ago. I mean, the Greeks had a concept, not of a, not of a, like a reciprocating steam engine, but, you know, the idea of steam power. They, they knew they could make a thing spin. Yeah. It just hadn't occurred to them to do anything to good have a it. piston or have it move a rod. Right. Um, and it really wasn't until the 18th century that we started to get the idea of steam power being used in machines. James Watt, uh, not the Secretary of the Interior, but... Uh, not the Beach Boys hating <laughs> Secretary of the Interior. The earlier one, uh, you know, made a lot of improvements to the steam engine such that it, you know, arguably sparked the Industrial Revolution. And this is all happening in uh, in... One of our favorite countries, England, not like Canada, which uh, was which was England, which was at the time. Well, it wasn't England, but it was England. There was a there was a part of land there that was forever. Why do you always say England? <laughs> Are you ever going to explain? It's such a long story. I don't even know why. Why I don't even know why I bother. You're really committing to the bit, though. Um, well, I've just been saying it for so well. Like every mis- mispronunciation, you say it enough, and then it, there's no other way to say it. Your mind, it, it, you dig a trough, you dig a mind trough. Um, well, you, you're you're busy clicking away over there. What are you looking up? Are you nope. just answering emails? <laughs> I am not. I am writing down which things, if you care to know. Yes, I am writing down which mail I opened on the last episode. Oh, I see. So I know which mail to do in this episode. Yes. Good. Good. I, you know, it has little to do with the steam engine. I I'll admit every podcast host that I co-host with is at some point or another answering their email while I talk, but I understand I'm not, this is show related. Okay. All right. Good. Imagine, think of me as some kind of producer figure who I'm going to be like, that story's great, John. Now let's do it one more time. Does that help? (laughs) Yeah. And then I'm like, that was it, man. That was the take. That was the final take. Come on. God, I'm an artist. Um, so the steam engine uh, offers us all these new opportunities. You know, initially we 
developed it to you know to cut and paste to to loom things to yeah to cut fabric and move spindles and clomp 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 but it was very soon after that that the idea that it could uh, it could present locomotion what if this loom was whizzing across the Surrey countryside, people said. Yeah, how would I get this loom to scurry? A scurrying loom is what I want. Um, the steamboat was uh, an exciting invention where the... Not to me. The steam engine... I was like, eh. <laughs> ...moved a boat. Put, 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 put. But, of course, a steamboat is limited by a lot of the factors that limit sailing boats... And steam engine powered friction, steamships. right? I mean, just you can turn that wheel as fast, the paddle wheel as fast as you can. But I was thinking about this on the ferry yesterday. Like you're still rubbing against all this water. Yeah, it's, it's just going to slow you down. It's why all these these new fast boats are up on those foils, yeah. right? Hydrofoils. You get most of the mass out of the water. We've talked about naval architecture before a couple of times, and there are ways to make ships go faster by making them longer. Uh, and narrower, which has something to do with Bernoulli's principle, which, God, we talk about every episode. I'll take your word for it. Um, this Italian physicist's namesake principle <laughs> is how the drinking straw works. Ooh, ding, 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 ding. Is I, that the sound it makes? Boop. It does not go ding, 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 uh, ding, ding. It's a light. There's no sound at all. When you hit the buzzer? Yes. But it's called a buzzer. That's a signaling. That's why we say a signaling device. Buzzer is a... Uh, it doesn't go bomb? Buzzer's a euphemism, I guess. What are the other shows where buzzers go bomb? It's a Family, family Feud. Family Feud definitely yeah. has the... Uh, Sorry, the Bernoulli's principle, I think, is also what makes your shower curtain yes. suck inward when the... Uh, it's how a drinking straw uh, works, but it's also how so many things work. God, Bernoulli's principle is all over the place. We could just talk about it endlessly. But let's not. But let's not. I have to get back to my email. Oh, right. Sorry. I'll try, <laughs> I'll try and whip through this. All right. That was good, love. Can you just tell the story quickly about Tom Thumb and we'll all have a drink. We'll have tea break. Now, we, we like to think, I think, uh, that the railroad was a, a, an invention that, um, that was waiting for the steam engine to happen. But in fact... The railroad started to be developed before the steam engine came on the scene. The idea is you would have a fixed, a fixed rail delimited path that would be propelled by horses. Yes. Well, uh, how is that of advantage? Does the it doesn't the horse can't run off into the woods? Well, you can pull a lot more carts. Mm. Apparently, a horse can pull more than uh, a single cart. Or a team of horses can. On iron rails. But uh, on rails. Now, the first, Less friction. the first railroads were actually made of wood. Well, that can't be good. Uh, and they were, it was always to do, the early railroads were all to do with mining. Uh, because you've got all this ore and you need to move it to the boats or move it to the furnaces. You could dig a tunnel to the smelter, but it takes a long time. <laughs> we, we, a long time. we recently learned. And you never get the ore to the smelter. It turns into its own thing. Uh, so they, you know, the, the idea of like, oh, well, what, if we put these carts on rails so that we didn't have to s steer them, uh, we could hook up a bunch of horses and pull it along rails. But is the idea you don't need a human then? Uh, no, but you only need one human oh, or you, you just need one, one buddy. And I bet, I bet there's less friction, right? If yeah. you, if you do it right, you know, it's, it's essentially a, it's like a ball bearing like thing. If you've got metal wheels on metal rails. Yeah. Otherwise you're either, your wheels are going in the mud or you're, you've got. 
a macadam down. And of course that's, um, its own pain in the neck. Wood rails, unfortunately, if you put a bunch of weight into carts, uh, the wood doesn't hold up. Right. And so then the idea of iron, uh, iron rails was introduced, pulled by horses, but the technology of the time was cast iron and cast iron. You could only cast a rail in a pretty short length and cast iron's pretty brittle. Why, why could you only, it's cause you're not, cause you're casting it. What you does that mean? You're okay. Oh, that's the size of the mold. Yeah. You pour it into a mold. You can't just it. make a longer mold. Well, how long a mold do you want? How, 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 how that's a fair point. Well, like how the smelter uh, might be very far away. Yeah. It's like, you're going to make a, a mold of a rail. You're probably going to try and do it as long as you can, but what is that? It's not that long. You're not going to be able to cast iron long enough to make rails big enough to to be useful long, long term. What is the new technology that makes rails longer? Well, it is wrought iron mm. is the, is the innovation. We weren't r- r- working iron. That's right. We weren't rotting it enough. And then ultimately. Rot is past tense of work. Yeah. Uh, right. And then, yeah, right. We didn't. For a well, second, I was going to say ring, but that's not right. It's work. Work. We didn't work. But then rolled steel came out and you could make these you know, these rails that were, that were pretty long, um, because you just, they, it was continuous, right? I mean, you couldn't make a, uh, a rail that was back then. I mean, now they roll out steel rail that is as long as a train. They uh-huh. just, they just roll, they put the, they put the rail from one car to the next and the cars are articulated, but the rail goes all the way through and they can take it out. It's pretty, uh, pretty cool when you see the, I think I need to watch a Mr. Rogers picture Build. picture style video of, of steel being rolled out. And uh, er, one of the early uh, inventions with rail was that the rail had the flange on it. You know, now you think it's the, it's the rolling stock, the actual uh, bogey, the, the, wheel, the wheel that has the flange that keeps the train on the track. But mm-hmm. uh, early, one of the, the first inventions was the, the, the rail had the flange. I guess it makes more sense because all you've seen is wheels and you're like, okay, I need to make some little runner, some little track that the wheel will stand. Now that technology is only used on 1980s closet doors. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah, those are good. I still have those. Um, but eventually, uh, the steam engine had arrived and this is all again in the United Kingdom. The steel, the steam engine had arrived at a point where it started to seem like, wow, what if we tried to put this onto this technology, which is already, uh, already ha- has become part of the industrial uh, revolution in England, the horse-drawn train. Um, and several attempts were made, but the, um, the, the problem was that the that the steam engine did not appear to have enough power to go up inclines. The early steam motors were, uh, you know, low horsepower. So you could do it if you live someplace flat. So what they did was they built railroads with rack and pinion, oh, I see. where there was a, a a cog, like cog like those cog railways on mountains. Yeah, exactly. And and this was the kind of you know the way it would propel itself up a mountain. Well, that it, it can't go very fast no. in that, but it, rail development was happening in the UK. Um, 
and a lot they had they had a contest where they were they had a section of rail and a bunch of different locomotive ideas came and they all raced it's just like those robot races right it's the it's the 19th century version of like how far can you get your robot across the mojave desert yeah right because it's brand new tech and nobody's ever seen like i don't know what the the desert crossing robot of the future looks like these guys didn't know what the trains and the railways were going to look like yeah what about this what about that it could be any shape it could be any tech the pistons are going this way and the and and, you know and the thing about a, a steam boiler is you know there are a lot of a lot of ways for it to not work. You're trying to condense, you know, a lot, a lot of the early versions of it, the heating and cooling of the boiler was actually happening on the piston, which is really bad. That's a bad machine. Mm. And having a, a condensing chamber where the heating and cooling was happening separate from the engine was an innovation on and on and on. I'm, I'm no expert on steam engines, so don't let me, start speculating on how they work. If you had told me today, <laughs> it's actually better to have the condens- the, the heating and cooling happening on the piston. You don't want a condensing chamber. I would just nod and be like, well, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah, of sure, course. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Sure. Good, thing Absolutely. I, good thing they figured that out. Now, during the same period, uh, and we've discussed this before on the Omnibus, although not extensively, this was the era of the canal. Um, mm. the, the canal seemed to be the industrial solution to moving ore and big you know, transportation issues, long distances. If we just dig a canal from here to there, then the work is done and, and boats, you know, and a lot of those boats were pulled by horses. So again, not moving very fast, but relative to uh, transporting all that ore in carts or on the backs of hardworking uh, Birminghamers. Don- I was going to say donkeys. Or donkeys yeah, also. But yeah. Uh, so canals were all the rage. And oh, hold on, I forgot to hold up my not compatible with Marxism oh, not sign. Compatible with Marxism. When you brought up the putting the war on the backs of the poor. Oh yeah, sorry about that. Not compatible with Marxism. Compatible. But what how do you feel about canals? Canals are compatible with Marxism. Yes. I have ruled. Yes. So canals are getting built all over uh England and uh and Europe and in the United States, the Erie Canal famous canal built to get up to we know every inch of the way from albany to buffalo isn't that what the song says from albany to buffalo so the erie canal has taken us all the way up to buffalo and you know of course they started canal ended at this city uh buffalo beep oh no there's no buzzer you need to phrase it in the form of a question wait a minute what is buffalo where is buffalo would you would you would you give somebody a thumbs down if they said what is buffalo instead of where is buffalo well no i mean for one thing it makes more sense in that if somebody said where is buffalo you wouldn't say the erie canal ended at this city i mean what is buffalo oh i see is is an equal is an equally implausible question that would lead to that answer so basically no matter what the question is it's right there, yeah. there was a guy who was just saying, what's Reagan? What's gravity? Oh, what's instead of uh, New Zealand? Yeah. Oh, I want that person to be uh, censured. No, it was a, it's a tactic. So you don't have to think about oh, your but, phrasing. But but it seems like a James Holtzauer tactic. Save one half harsh, a split second. Harsh words. If you are on Jeopardy and you hit the buzzer and actually make a buzzer sound with your mouth, yeah. 
would you tell them to stop doing that? Or would that be one of those quirky things that Jeopardy contestants do that make them beloved? I would probably ask them to stop doing that. It seems like a, it seems like it would annoy the other players. It would, seems like it, you, to level the playing field, we need to maintain a certain amount of decorum. Would you ask them on air or would that be a thing that you'd do off air during a commercial break? Would you stop uh, doing that? Hey, would you knock that off? <laughs> or would you say like, hey, buddy, can you stop doing that? All right, but I need to remind you, stop doing that thing. (laughs) So the thing about the Erie Canal that's interesting is, and we don't talk about this enough when we talk about the Erie Canal, you know, the War of 1812 was only resolved uh, not that long before the Erie Canal began construction. Okay. Um, The Erie Canal... uh, was only authorized in 1817. So that's not that long after the War of 1812. I'm not a mathematician, but it might be around five years That's after. right. That's right. And so the St. Lawrence Seaway, um, which effectively uh, duplicates the Erie Canal, but naturally through the water, through the ocean. Let's call the St. Lawrence Seaway <laughs> It's now part of the ocean. ocean. It's the, um, it's the natural childbirth of of the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal is the epidural. Yeah, up to a certain point, it's the ocean, and then it stops being the ocean at a at a point when the salt stops. Yeah, the salinity will here's be, the problem will change just enough. Salinity changes gradually. Yeah. Does that mean it's mostly the ocean at a certain point, and then it's then it's somewhat the ocean, and then it's slightly the ocean? It's like everything that's ambiguous. You just determine it. You say like this much salinity, and it's no longer the ocean. There's a bright line. Yeah. And you just say, here it is, and you draw you 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 put a rope across the St. Lawrence Seaway and does, you say, Welcome to not the ocean. Does the government pick a number? Yeah, I think it's the government. I'm holding up compatible with Marxism. There you go. Compatible with Marxism. The government picks a an arbitrary number. Of the two of us, I am so glad that you are the one adjudicating what is compatible with Marxism. Well, that's mostly because you're supposed to be teaching us about the Tom Thumb. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just have a lot more spare time over on the side of the table. (laughs) I have no idea what the Tom Thumb is. I thought it was a guy in your wall. So the Erie Canal was partly to get around the fact that Canada controlled the St. Lawrence Seaway because they were still enemies of the United States. Um, But there's another thing that the Erie Canal was um, enemy of which was other port cities on the American seaboard. Oh, sure. They're going to take a hit. If That's right. If nothing's going to go through them anymore. Because it used to be that cities down the coast um, would were responsible for, for moving goods and services, although less services than goods. Right. You can't move services to horseback in most cases. In most cases. Sex work, for example, very difficult. To well, you can transport sex workers via horseback, right. but the, at that point, are they goods? But the actual service, no, tricky. Um, and so that brings us to the great city of Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Baltimore hates the Erie Canal to this day. <laughs> they really do. They were so against the Erie Canal, and there's a reason. That is that Baltimore was through the Cumberland Gap, a very quick route to get stuff to the Ohio River. And you could... So it implies a ton of people to get the stuff off the ships and onto the carriages. That's right. Onto the carriages and through the, over the river and through the woods. Through the gap. And then down to the Ohio. And once it was on the Ohio, then goods could move uh, west. And, uh, and Baltimore had built a, a, a great sort of trunk road over this distance. Uh, and, but they saw 
that the canal was going to be able to move a lot more stuff a lot more efficiently. These guys are cheating. They're like making the Ohio River go like all the way to Albany. That's right. We can't have that. That's Boo. not what God would have put the Ohio River in Albany if he'd wanted it there. And and basically, yeah, you get to the Ohio River through the Great Lakes yeah. rather than right. Um, and just They're like cheating, just like it's cheaper to saw down trees in the Northwest, ship them to Asia, have them milled into things, and then shipped back. It was cheaper to send things up to Buffalo and down than it was to take it over the road. And so the city of Baltimore said, "This is this will not stand." And they started to. Uh, they, they, they recognized that rail travel was uh, had this much greater efficiency, and so the the uh, Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, mm. the B Hence the name, the B and O Railroad, uh, which uh, made famous by the Monopoly game, right, was incorporated in order to build a rail route to the Ohio from Baltimore to protect those port jobs, right. And the initial rail uh, idea was that the rail cars would be pulled by horses. At this point in England, England mm, for a second I thought you wouldn't do it. England, and then you did. Um, they were already uh, putting. They were already mating steam engines with Whoa. trains. Oh. in a sort of hot David Cronenberg kind yeah, of way, sixties. Sixties, seventies, cyborgian, heavy metal magazine, proto cyborgian. Um, but in the United States, uh, we were we were a little bit behind. Uh, a lot of that equipment we were still importing from England. G- Got to keep the brand. Um, <laughs> and the B and O Railroad had not yet constructed its rail all the way to the Ohio. When they said, look, we need to get in on this steam engine game. And so they put out a call to, uh, for someone to design a, a steam engine that could potentially power one of these carts, you know, a, a, what would be a big draft horse pulled cart. And they, uh, they were contacted by an engineer by the name of Peter Cooper. Who said, you know what? I think I can build a motor that will drive this that will drive this machine. I I I've seen a rig that could haul that tanker. And so he took a uh, a boiler that was basically like the size of a kitchen boiler, a, a pretty small little house boiler, and he built it into a steam engine. Uh at one point he didn't have enough piping, and so he dismantled a couple of old muskets. And uh, used the musket barrels, you know, bent them. We're thinking this guy can beat the Erie Canal? Come on. <laughs> bent them into a, into a little, you know, a boiler, a little machine. And um, the B&O had, at this point, constructed 13 miles of their track, which well, was... They already had track before they had the tech to ride on it. Well, because they were pulling, they were using horses right. to, to pull the... Right, right, right. Uh, they, had a, they had planned 380 miles of track all the way up and over and down to the Ohio. Um, but th- this was a sort of proof of contact, uh, proof of concept. So at the end of August in 1830, now wait a minute, it's the end of, oh no, it's the beginning of August now when we're recording this show. It's early September by the time the first people could possibly hear this. Oh, so. So it would be the, what anniversary? 1830? 
So it'd be the 192nd anniversary. The 192nd anniversary of this event. This is, fateful day. Ha, has just happened to you, futurelings who are listening to this show in the future. Not uh, very far in the future. Uh, on, the, on the 28th of August, uh, the B&O challenged Peter Cooper to transit this 13-mile section of track from Baltimore to uh, what, what was called Relay House. Which is just wherever the track ended at this Which point? Which is where the track ended, yeah. And so they loaded up a car. They put 40 dignitaries and top-hatted uh, gentlemen. And in the car? In the, in the cart with them, yeah. Well, this is experimental tech, and yep. they're, they're putting the judges in the machine? In fact, a lot of them crowded up on the locomotive, and then the rest were back in the car. And and these are these are just horse carts. You know, they're... They are indistinguishable from horse carts, but on a track. And off they went. And uh, choo-choo, Chattanooga, there they are. They make it to Ellicott Mills, which is there at the, at the um, you know, relay house. And at one point on the trip, the locomotive got up to 18 miles an hour. What's being tested here? Is it are they timing how long it takes to get there? They're timing how long it takes to get there, and they're I mean, they're just so this route is very uh steep, and it's also there are a lot of tight corners. And so some of the challenge, a big part of the challenge, and a lot of the conviction that rail would never be able to actually make this route is is there is it possible for this machine to go up this steep incline and also go around these tight corners? Um, and and let's try it with a bunch of guys in top hats. That's see, right. see if they can go around the corner. How it many was, guys in top hats do you think they lost at every at every S curve? It was back at a time when you couldn't keep guys in top hats off of your machines. Uh, so at the point at which they got up to eighteen miles an hour, there were actually several of these guys in top hats that took out their pens. And jotted down notes to prove that it was possible to write mm. at that speed. At the speed of 18 miles an hour. Yeah. Because that, would, that was the point at which they had passed horse speed. So horses could go, technically, you know, go faster than that. But a horse... But you couldn't ride. You couldn't ride and write. You couldn't ride in a horse-drawn cart and go much faster. Than They're that. conveying something about the smoothness. I'm yeah. going at horsey speed, but I'm not... And look at me. Like, it's, you know, you can write and and you're not... It's like passing the sound barrier. Are, is, are That's we what gonna, I was going to say. Is it going to explode our face? Think no. about these guys feeling like Chuck Yeager at 18 miles an hour. <laughs> so as they... Uh, as they're like huckledy bucking along on the train, um, they pass the stagecoach operation, the haulage company, the Teamsters of the famous company Stockton and Stokes. And Stockton and Stokes sees this train go by with all these top hats whooping and hollering. And they say, hmm. Look at these yo-yos. I don't like this very much at all. They say not compatible not with Marxism. Not compatible with the Teamsters Union, which is compatible with Marxism. And Cooper had actually already had this problem. 
because Cooper was a tinkerer and an inventor, and he had earlier invented a steam-powered chain system that would pull boats along the Erie Canal. And that had pissed off some stevedores or, had, or burrow drivers or something? Had, it had infuriated the Teamsters, who said, this is going to take away good jobs from God-fearing horse drivers. And horses. And so his steam chain system was uh, was rejected, and horses retained this role on the Erie Canal. He also, Peter Cooper also invented... Was that why it was rejected, by the way? for As a... As a jobs program? Yeah, basically? yeah, because of the horses. Huh. Um, Peter Cooper also invented a self-rocking baby cradle that had a fan-powered fly shoer. And the Teamsters hated that because they used to go over to, to young mothers' houses and rock their babies. Well, and they would shoe the flies with the horsetail. <laughs> um, but Peter Cooper had another investment in making this whole thing work, which was that he had already bought 3,000 acres of land outside Baltimore on the train line. Oh, no. That's confidence, I guess, in your invention. That's right. Peter Peter Cooper was... Uh, He's betting well, on Peter Cooper. He was. He was kicking out the jams. Anyway, when they turned the train around, and what's great is that the Baltimore and Ohio had already built two sets of tracks there and back they they uh they saw into the future enough to know that it couldn't that one track wasn't going to be sufficient they needed they needed parallel tracks or else you can't run two directions at once and so they got to the end they switched the train around got it ready to make the return trip and the uh the the, sm- the smirking staff of Stockton and Stokes rode up with a with a, a a cart drawn by an a, an enormous and beautiful gray draft horse and they said we'll race you. Oh, it wasn't supposed to be a race. No. This was you know, oh, we really loved watching you guys go by hooping and hollering at 18 miles an hour, but we bet we can beat you back to Baltimore. So this is a Chuck Yeager situation where like some guy just watching in the desert is like, I bet I can fly faster than that. That's right. They thought they were just doing a test flight and then yeah, t- turned into a race. And of course, you know, you see the steam engine go by and you're like, uh-oh, there goes all of our our traffic to the Ohio River. And so you got to prove you got to prove that the that the top hats and Peter Cooper are wrong. So the uh Peter Cooper and the railroad guys accept the challenge and uh off they go. And unlike a foot race, the horses jump ahead. Um, oh, and they loaded the horse cart up with as much, uh, and I'm not sure as many people. Yeah, did they find but, uh, industrialists of the same weight? Yeah, they loaded it up so that it had an equivalent, it was pulling an equivalent amount of weight. One on each track, parallel. And uh, they head out. Well, the horses get up. Uh, get going a lot faster because the steam engine is doing its like huff and puff trying to get up the slope and it takes a while and the horses are way out in front, um, like a half mile ahead before the train starts to get up speed. And eventually the locomotive starts to catch up to the horses and it gets now neck and neck and the horses are really going 
You're literally seeing the 19th century happen here. And this is it, right? Like 1830, end of August. This is the first time that a train has really... This is like the one moment when the ocean turns salty. It was a gradual process, but like you can actually see it happening in one place. And the locomotive passes the horses. And immediately, a leather belt that is used between the... Uh, the compressor and the and the flywheel slips off. Oh no! And the the train goes, <laughs> and they you know slop, 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 they slop, slop. all of a sudden lose all their power. The horses go storming by. Peter Cooper frantically trying to reattach this leather belt burns both of his hands. Oh. Uh, thrashes himself, finally gets it all together, but the horses end up winning the race. But it seems like, you know, because of a mishap, you run that back 10 times. Yeah, but... Maybe the horses have no chance. This is it. This that's, is the race. That's not how history works. That's right. It's not like if Chuck, Chuck Yeager blew up his jet <laughs> and crashed in the desert. He doesn't get the record. Now, we know this story because of a lecture... Not given in 1830, but in 1868 by by a man named John H.B. Latrobe, who was an investor in the B&O Railroad and who was on the train at the time. And John Latrobe sets up the whole story and, you know, and uh, is telling this story as a kind of, here's an example of you know, American ingenuity. And this was the moment, the last, the last moment where the horse could compete with industrialization. And from that 1868 lecture, the, uh, the event was immortalized in oil paintings and became, you know, really a, uh, so nobody thought about it for 40 years. And then suddenly it became iconic. Became this iconic sort of like, oh, that was the moment. Now we're all traveling all around on trains. Those, those were the days. And and none of us really thought to commemorate it at the time because who, you know, they they dismantled Tom Thumb as soon as this was over. Tom Thumb was never never a production model, right? Right. But they, you know, in this flurry of excitement, they, they uh, rebuilt Tom Thumb. They made a replica of Tom Thumb that even today sits in the B&O Railroad Museum in Baltimore. But here's the problem. Subsequent researchers, 20th century researchers, including the B&O Museum itself, can find no contemporary account of the race. Huh. Including in any of the diaries of any of the many notable dignitaries who were on the trains or on the train in Latrobe's account in Latrobe's account including Latrobe now Peter Cooper did make reference to it at some point in the 18 you know in 1860 he in the course of an interview said yeah i raced a train against a horse one time and the train motor broke and the horse won and we didn't publicize it because it was embarrassing. So it did happen. Latrobe wasn't just myth-making? No one knows. The, the, currently the B&O Museum has uh, 
you know, there's a big asterisk next to this because like everything in the 19th century, it became this hagiography, this like, you know, this is how the industrial revolution, you know, this was the moment that it crossed the Rubicon. Um, but you would think given the number of those people that were keeping daily diaries, that one of them might've said was in an interesting race today. Like, can you imagine just getting pulled along, uh, at 18 miles at uh, unparalleled speeds by a brand new invention and then not telling anyone, not no telling newspaper anybody. covers it. Cause no you diary? were embarrassed about the horses winning. It's possible Maybe. that the owners of the B and O would have then said, all right, let's everybody just keep this under, under wraps. I guess. Um, but, uh, but that does make the thing a curious thing. Now, the first locomotive to go faster than 55 miles an hour, breaking President Carter's heart. Uh, and, <laughs> the warming the cockles of Sammy Hagar. And validating Sammy Hagar in all of his scofflawdom uh, happened not very long after. the the At that point, the... Um, the steam engine was in full flight, and it you, you couldn't keep a good train down. So, so just, just a few years later, suddenly it, it went from eighteen to fifty-five. Yeah, we're talking about this is in eighteen thirty. By eighteen fifty, trains were were hauling butt all over. And if you think about, you know, it wasn't that much longer uh, before the Civil War. And you know, when was the transcontinental railroad? So you know, the the transcontinental railroad was suggested to Congress in 1845. So just 15 years later. And they started work on it. It took them a while. And we, you know, we did, we've talked about this on the omnibus. Um, but because, you know, cause the construction of it was a big scam. Um, but Peter Cooper never built another locomotive. Did not, Go on he to. He didn't think this is the future. He did not say. I mean, his three thousand acres outside of Baltimore ended up being worth a lot of money. Right. But he did not see himself as having um, built the first American locomotive, uh, and built the first. You know, like being a part of that first American railroad. Um, he did continue to be an inventor, and in fact, uh, had a steel mill where he produced the first steel I-beams, huh. which, of course, then go on to being a... Without, sky, without that, you don't get skyscrapers. Yeah. Um, he didn't invent, but he manufactured torpedoes, and he patented powdered gelatin. <laughs> My man could have invented trains, but instead he's like, no, I think what America really needs is delicious gelatin desserts. But then... At the age of 85, he ran for president of the United States out of the green, as uh, the nominee of the Greenback Party. Mm. He is still to this day the oldest person to run for president. In, until 2024. <laughs> <laughs> what election was this? Uh, it was, uh, he ran against Rutherford B. Hayes. So it was 1876, which was after the 1868 lecture by John Latrobe. So he was a famous American at this point, having been 
lionized as the inventor of just the locomotive on the strength of the Tom Thumb, even though. Well, but he all you know he was also a, a very wealthy man and uh, and a, a notable inventor and industrialist. You know, American. Um, Sure. Uh, industrial. But the railroad's such a big part of the American myth. Yeah. You have to imagine that's a big part of his of his campaign if if you know, if he runs on that. Right. But he lost. Um but when So he, did Hayes actually. Tilden should have won, but I am still mad. You're mad about the, about how Rutherford B. Hayes stole the election? Are you a truther? I'm a Samuel Tilden truther. A Tilden truther. How do you think America would be different if Tilden had won? Oh yeah. This is like uh this is gonna be my Apple TV plus <laughs> <laughs> for First all mankind series. there's pictures of samuel tilden on every <laughs> on every street corner yeah. now all the freed slaves got 40 acres and a mule and america had yeah maybe it's a utopia yeah i wish in this tilden world there is one utopian aspect to this which is that when peter cooper died his enormous estate went to fund cooper union college no way yeah Wait, he's the Cooper of Cooper he Union? He is the Cooper of Cooper Union. So if you've been to the New York Design Museum or whatever it's called, that's uh, that's all coming from his B&O money. That's right. Huh. But you really should have stuck with it. Like, yeah, right. I, like, here's my Tiger Mom take on this story. He should have kept making locomotives. You need to work hard like Peter Cooper and not give up like Peter Cooper did later. We would call them Coopers now. Exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm riding the Cooper down to down to uh, Portsmouth. I don't think that's true. Since we don't call them by the name of whoever did invent a perfected one. That's the thing. One. You don't even know who it was, right? But if it was... If it was a big big name like Rich Peter Cooper. Yeah, you'd call him Peter Cooper's. Hey, are you taking the Peter Cooper over to Chicago? Just taking the Cooper to Cooperstown, yeah. you know. Coop, Coop. Super Cooper. That's what they would call um, bullet trains. Super Cooper. Yeah, Super Cooper. Yeah. And that concludes... Tom Thumb, entry 1315.PR2131, certificate number 17918, in the omnibus. Now, as products of our broken time in the second industrial revolution here, we were uh, on social media, really 24-7, at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, when he falls off the wagon. Uh, You could receive email, we could... Receive email at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Physical mail could be sent to us at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I didn't think I was going to get through all the mail today, and we've almost done it. Yeah, but there's two big boxes there. What are you talking about? One of those boxes, somebody paid $23 to send us something, and I almost feel bad. Like, what... What could we ever do that would be worth $23 in postage? Did it come from America, or is it overseas postage? Let's find out. It came from Oklahoma. It just must be very heavy. Oklahoma? First of all, the... uh, What's this outfit called? The Center for Land Use Interpretation uh, sent us, as they often do copies of some of their latest oh no these are back issues of the lay of the land their in-house magazine love it are you interested in the landscape of perishable food in america yes or let's see how about the long reach of shortwave it's an exhibit about it's an exhibit about the voice of america that seems very omnibusy that's showing up there oh they must have an ex- exhibition space because a lot of these cover stories are about exhibits i wonder if they can be visited i mean this is as I've said before, this is like a block from where I often stay when I'm in L.A., so. Maybe I should go hang out at the Center for Land Use Interpretation. 
see what they know. All right, I'm opening something from Joshua in Wisconsin. He sent us... Let's see, he's a city council member of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and he sent you a bag of whole bean dark roast coffee. It, oh. se it seems really, it's so dark that the the mascot is some kind of lumberjack zombie. Here, throw it. Sorry, Karen buff the mic. Lumberjack zombie it is. And he's sending it because he always thought the label art looked like you, or what you would look like if you were dead. It does look a little bit like me if I were dead. Except it has big gauge earrings, which I do not have. Yet. And, well, no. And also it is wearing a flannel shirt, which I would do, but then with a bow tie, which I would not do. You would wear a bow tie and you would wear a flannel shirt, but, but not, not together. together. That's right. Guess what? Uh, he's a longtime listener to your work. Oh, he's and wearing, he's this zombie is wearing a red beanie, which I do wear. Please stop talking about that for a second okay. so I can say something more important. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Which is that he ran for uh, city council in Eau Claire, and he implies that it was uh, inspired by listening to you. Oh, that makes me happy. And he has been elected. Hey, hey! One of us got elected. Congratulations. <laughs> I think you could probably make it in Eau Claire still. If you're ever in his neck of the woods, swing by. He offers you some cheese curds. I've been everywhere, man. Boston and Eau Claire, man. Brett sent us some World War II. This is the $23 package from Oklahoma. Sent us some World War II era copies of Fortune magazine. We're getting so many magazines but today. What did Fortune look like in the 40s? Oh, it's amazing. Maybe if we read them and then time travel, we can make good investments based on their advice. I am so bored with these articles and so into all the <laughs> advertising art. Like magazine illustration. Like what field has declined more since the 40s than magazine illustration? Maybe sign painting. <laughs> uh, yeah, mustache waxing. No, that that's actually a booming business now. Should we tell Brett he could have just sent these media mail and it, it would have been like maybe four bucks tops? But look how heavy Fortune magazine was in 1940. Look, he's a city council person. He needs to be able to... Oh, wow. No, this is a different correspondent. Thing. This oh. is Brett, who is presumably not on the city council of McAllister, Oklahoma. This is really cool. Well, this illustration is blowing my mind. This is a mid-war illustration... I guess even though World War II is going on, the, the rich people who read Fortune magazine are also interested in, look at this, the future of glassware. That's what's a top of mind for them. Well, but you know, science can. Science is what's going to win the war from the Nazis. Should I invest in glass? Every one of these ads is amazing. All these illustrations, amazing. This carrot means healthy meals, but you know what? This carrot is actually a lump of calcium metal. This is an ad for calcium from Union Carbide. Uh-huh. Well, they'll never do anything wrong. No, so. you can trust them. Whoa, Picasso's Guernica. Fortune magazine has a, has an arts and culture column. Well, it's brand new, right? Yeah, like check out the new painting by Pablo Picasso. The painters interpret the war, and it's got a series of uh, of World War II inspired works by Chagall. Max the Aaron. painters. Oh, here is an ad for uh, a brand of vacuum tubes as manufactured by Westinghouse. That's awesome, Brett. This is fantastic. Thank you for sending us. Fortune makes. Oh, you know, here's why he didn't send it media mail. He is also included. Oh, look oh. at this. Look at this. Scott Toilet Tissue has an ad saying only an epidemic 
could close the factories and uh, and reduce wartime uh, production. And so we need the sanitation provided oh. by toilet paper. Toilet paper will win the war. Toilet paper wins the war. Is that really true? I mean... Do if you're already if you already have toilet paper related, I mean, does does toilet paper actually do anything to keep uh, to poop keep... off your hands? Yes. <laughs> well, I presume they were washing their hands whenever they were wiping with. Do not presume. Most of them had outhouses still at that time. Hard to wipe your hands. Also, Scott toilet tissue is not the one I would pick to keep poop off your hands. So here's why he didn't send it media mail. He also includes. Uh, a 30-year-old pair of Armani eyeglasses from his college job at an eyeglass shop. Probably only worn a few times. Not the original case, but these are amazing. What? Oh, man. That's great, right? Look at those. These are real John Lennon's. Let's see you in them. They're real Coke bottles. It makes you look older. Is that what you're going for? Yeah, the, this style does make one look older. It just you're. I mean, having no eyebrows doesn't help. It your whole face has just faded away. Yeah, the thing about a, a pair of glasses like this is, if you're 20, you look like cool and anachronistic, but if you're old, you just look old. Yeah, I write for the National Review now, and I wear these. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brett, and I already forgot Joshua and the Center for Land Use Interpretation. <laughs> Uh, the best way to support the show is not to send us vintage eyewear, although that always, I mean, never hurts. I mean, the more vintage eyewear, the better. I think everybody agrees. Uh, but you could also go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and say to yourself, you know what? For a small monthly amount, I get a bonus omnibus and tons of other perks. Check that out at patreon.com slash omnibus project and seek out fellow futurelings wherever you can find them online. Uh, Facebook group, most notably, but there's also a Discord and a, a subreddit. And um, and please remember to wipe your butt, or we might lose the war. Loose butt sink subs. Loose sphincters <laughs> save mm, stingers. Is there a plane called a stinger? No, but there's a missile called a stinger. There we go. Almost. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.